0: Uh, Welcome, everyone, to this forum for uh, event uh, here at the LSE. It's lovely to see lots of uh, familiar faces from our previous events, but for those of you who don't know who we are, we are the Forum for European Philosophy. We put on public events, discussions like tonight, debates, lectures, all around the idea of getting philosophy out into the public. all of our events are open to the public, most of them, almost all of them are free thanks to the generosity of our donors and uh, particularly we want to t- thank tonight um, the LSE and the conference organisers who have helped us set up everything here which has been fantastic. Um, just a couple of housekeeping points. Um, please turn off the sound on your phone, and um, don't turn off your phone, feel free to live tweet the event, we have our hashtag here welcome to do that the future is now um, and uh, also uh, the event is being recorded for a podcast so if you are going to ask a question if you could wait for the microphone to get to you before you ask your question that would be great so your voice gets recorded on to the podcast okay that's it, enough for me i'll hand you over to our chair for the evening hugo spears could you ask-
1: Okay, can you hear me okay? So, hello, my name's... Okay, does that help? Check. So there is a mic. Okay, let me speak. We'll be sitting right close. So, uh, welcome to this, uh, this evening's panel discussion on the nature of memory, perspectives from art, history, and neuroscience. And my name's Hugo Spears. I'm a lecturer at University College London. I'd like to first introduce the topic and then I'll introduce the speakers to you tonight uh, and then we'll get debating. One of our speakers has mysteriously been kidnapped on his way here and we'll hope he'll make it from the back and appear. He, of course, is a philosopher. So, <laughs> so let me start by actually introducing the idea of memory. We're going to discuss the nature of memory in tonight's debate and discussion. And I thought I'd start, since we've got a number of literary people on the panel tonight, with a literary quotation from a science fiction writer. One of my favorite writers, Michael Crichton, who of course wrote Jurassic Park and a number of other books, including the book Sphere. And in the book Sphere, the main protagonist at the end of the book has to decide whether or not to wipe his memories for all uh, the period that's gone in the book. And at this point, the, the uh, author, Michael Crichton, writes through his, his mind. In a sense, he thought, all we consist of is memories. Our personalities are constructed from Memories. Our lives are organized around memories. Our cultures are built upon the foundation of shared memories that we call history and science. But now to give up a memory, to give up knowledge, to give up the past, his entire being rebelled against the idea of forgetting. So this is this moment in the book that pictures the importance of memory in a small small snapshot, and we'll hopefully come back to these sorts of ideas in this debate. So tonight, um, we're going to look at the nature of memory from different perspectives. Um, I'm going to start the debate with with neuroscience and we'll move into the other panelists. So I'd like to start now by introducing the other panelists who are going to pick up the discussion with us. So in addition to myself, uh, on my right here, we have uh, Professor uh, Adam Roberts, who's a science fiction novelist and professor of 19th century literature at Royal Holloway uh, University, London. Uh, On my left here is my left is Jessica Bland, who is a researcher at uh, Nestor, looking at future technology. And just on my far left is uh, Sebastian Gross, who is a senior lecturer in English literature at the University of Roehampton. And we very much hope Professor Barry Smith will make an appearance from the back. uh, Is somebody coming? But it's not Barry. Um, so hopefully he'll join us and take a seat at the end of this table to debate uh, from his perspective. He is the professor of philosophy at Birkbeck College and director of the Institute of Philosophy. Um, and so, so I'd like to start this evening by thinking about memory from a, a neuroscience perspective, and then we're going to move out into other perspectives. And the idea is to not have a, a debate on memory focused purely from psychology or philosophy, but arch out into the humanities, into different realms we might not normally uh, reach uh, as part of this forum uh, in this debate. So I'm a neuroscientist. I'm obsessed, of course, with the brain. I spend waking moments in my life thinking about the brain, remembering facts about the brain. And From my sort of experience, my, if somebody says, what's the nature of memory, Hugo?, tell me what the nature of memory is, Uh, if I'm pushed and and confronted with this, my instant thought is it's stuff to do with synapses, the little structures inside our brain. That there's our brain as it grows inside our body from the moment we're born, and before we're born, in fact, lays down these amazing memories till we die. And actually, what the nature of memory is, is the kind of changes that occur in these uh, cells in your brain, the neurons, and the fact that they're malleable, they can, they can change, they can update how they're configured. So that the chemicals within them change, the physical structure, the look of them changes. And that, in a sense, is the nature of memory. It's those structures. But the question as a neuroscientist, so what changes and where and what is changing? Uh, I'm not just obsessed with the structure, but I'm also interested in, well, what is it, what is it that's memory in terms of thought and in terms of behavior. And so if you ask me in a different mood, I'm sitting with undergraduate psychologists, I would think about the nature of memory as, well, there are different types of memories. The short-term memories, long-term memories, you can think about different types of memory systems. I'm not going to bore you with that tonight. But one of the big advances we've seen in neuroscience is not just understanding the connections in our brain and how, and there's Barry just arriving at the back. big welcome to Barry Smith. Uh, (laughs)
2: He gets a round of applause. (laughs) He came down to a stony
1: silence.
2: (laughs) So we should shuffle up
1: a bit. So okay. So so I'm hoping Barry will will take. So I'm just Barry, just for your information, starting to take a very reductionist view of memory, which is the kind of standard view in neuroscience that it's synaptic changes. uh, But it's also the idea that there isn't memory. There isn't one type of memory. And in fact, your brain has all these different systems running in parallel to solve lots of different things. So what if I imagined I asked someone in the audience tonight, what is a memory for you? It might be, well, remembering to come here tonight or what I was doing just before or what happened this morning. That's one type of memory we call episodic memories, autobiographical memories. But in fact, our brain is flooded with different types of memories. Knowing how to ride a bicycle you don't remember that in the same way when you first learnt it. It's a habit. It's something you know how to do. And so we know from work on, on patients that these types of memory systems differ enormously. You can have some patients who can remember what happened yesterday but can't learn to ride a bicycle. Uh, and vice versa, you might find someone that um, can't remember yesterday at all but is able to do that. So you can get these dissociations. And there's a lot of research I had to sum up that. Um, and we could sit here and talk about that all night. But in fact, it's, you know, it's, it's what it is. It's, it's um, there's some really interesting discoveries that have fueled our understanding of what memory, the nature of memory, really is. But as a neuroscientist, tonight we're going to open out this panel discussion into people in, in philosophy, literature, and future technology. And ask, what is the nature of memory for them? So I'm going to pass over uh, first to the end of the panel to Sebastian Gross, who is a, an expert in, liter- uh, in English literature and he's going to pick up and, and talk about that. But before I do start passing out around the panel, it's worth mentioning that, in fact, why there's a hanging picture behind us. And, in fact, we're all gathered here tonight because of a uni- unifying uh, binding through the, AR, uh, the ARHC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council of the UK, and the Wellcome Trust, who funded... Um, Sebast- Sebastian led this a memory network, a network of, of uh, different researchers in the sciences and humanities to come together and think about memory. And one of the outputs of that is a book which will be released in January at the pricely sum of 67 pounds, um, which um, contains musings and considerations from each of us on the panel and many other uh, important writers and thinkers uh, in the humanities and the sciences. Um, so I'm going to now hand over to Sebastian to pick up his thoughts, uh, and then we'll pass through the panel uh, and let them then reflect a little bit on each other's thoughts, and then we'll come to you to ask you what you think your perspectives are on the nature of memory. So, Sebastian, do you want to pick Great. up on that?
3: Thank you, Hugo. Um, as you indicate yourself, you're setting up a very reductive way of looking at memory, and uh, you're kind of a, a neuro-Nazi uh, in a sense that <laughs> Over the past 10 years, there are various critics and, and neuroscientists, theoretical neuroscientists, who, who indeed reductively conflate memory and cognition the way we think with uh, just something to do with the brain. And I think even most neuroscientists have now moved away from... Um, that idea, and they understand, appreciate that thinking is not something just to do with the the brain, with with your synapses firing, uh, but it is something to do with the body and with Um, objects, uh, materials, all sorts of uh, objects in the outside world. The way we think is not just with our brains, but we think also with our bodies. It's called kind of embodied cognition. Um, And you can even extend that with uh, a theory that was kind of uh, uh, developed by uh, a couple of philosophers uh, called uh, Chalmers and Clark in 1997, uh, called the Extended Mind Thesis. And uh, this is the idea that we use all sorts of objects in the outside world to think through how uh, the world works. So uh, I think we have moved away from that idea of uh, that neuromaniac idea of, of the idea that thinking is just to do with, with the brain. Um, So, um, I'm interested in in literature, and and I guess literature has been obsessed with memory uh, from its very early starts, uh, from Oedipus, uh, who forgets who he is, but also Homer and the Odyssey, where you've got the lotus eaters, who are kind of addicted to uh, amnesia um, throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. We then go to the modernist period in the early early 20th century, with Proust, Proust, And we may come back uh, to Proust with with Barry, who's written on Proust. Uh, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, who were obsessed with time and consciousness, but also with the the workings of uh, memory. And and some of the uh, innovations of the modernist poets and and writers uh, are things that are being kind of affirmed by neuroscientists now. So, in a way... um, the modernist kind of uh, thinking 100 years ago kind of anticipated something that's going on right now. So uh, this is very, very important, I think. Um, what I really want to say before passing on to, to, to Jessica um, is that um, contemporary writers, um, and Adam is, is one of them, uh, have been... Uh, very strong in rethinking memory in the contemporary phase. There's really a complexification taking place of, uh, of how we think of memory and what memory is, the content of memory. So we may want to think of cognition and memory as something that is distributed, that is shared, that is collective. Um, so the individual has less control over uh, memory itself. Memory is taken over by machines, um, and this has got I don't know, ethical um, uh, consequences. And, and memory is more relational and conditional. It's dependent on other people, other sources, computers, and all sorts of uh, uh, I don't know, technology that we use to outsource our memories to. And I think this is something we'll pick up on uh, later on. Um, Jess. Thank you.
4: Hi.
3: Yep, we now like to hear Jessica Bland. Thank you.
4: Um, so Hugo introduced me as someone who thinks about technology in the future but that doesn't mean I'm actually a computer scientist it means I work in a charity that thinks about better uses of technology for public or social good and not just for the good of the people who own the company they're in so I have the luxury of spending some of my day thinking about new technologies on the very cutting edge and wondering how we can reimagine them in a different way to the way they are imagined right now and this is brought me to think about artificial forms of memory most recently Um, and I think that's a good thought experiment when today we're challenging notions or historical notions of memory from science and new notions of memory from literature. So I'm going to take one example and then I'll let others speak. Um, there's a startup in London called DeepMind. They're pretty famous in the media at the moment because they were bought by Google for hundreds of millions of pounds last summer. This leads to quite a lot of rumour about what they might actually be doing. Um, these, these, you know, DeepMind are three guys. I think they probably used to work quite near you in yeah, UCL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <They> <laughs> Hundreds do. of millions. Let me say that again. The squad. <laughs> and Imperial College.
5: And Imperial. <laughs> College. And
4: Imperial. Sorry let's not forget. Um, but the kind of technology these guys have been creating could be called artificial intelligence. It could be called a way of trying to recreate um, part of what it means to be human. And I started thinking about, well, well what does this mean for the humanness of, of memory? What does it mean not just to define memory in its human capacity, but to think of it in if we try to reproduce it in an artificial form? So let me explain what what their deep learning technology does. It it takes what people call artificial neural networks. This doesn't mean these are things that look anything like neurons. It just means that they are layers of um, computations rather than just a single computation. So 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a single one. If you put a multiplier or a big function in the middle, I'm not going to try and explain any further, then you've got layers of functions. So this is called a deep learning algorithm. And actually one of the biggest experiments they've done and the one they talk about most publicly um, is getting their algorithm to learn to play computer games. So they took Atari games from from back in time and all they gave their algorithm were the inputs and outputs. So if I turn left in the game, then man over here shoots me with a gun. If I turn right in the game, I find a treasure chest. And they just allowed their algorithm to play these games over and over again. And the algorithm learned to be successful at the game. Now, what's amazing about this is that that learning happened with very little input from the designer. So um, they didn't tell it, this is a game from 1985 that you play, and the the aim is to shoot people and to find treasure chests. They just gave it nothing, and it learned this fairly human skill of... Um, manipulating a physical or albeit virtual environment and that actually point scoring is the, the final aim of what they're doing. Um, in the media this leans, the kind of pontification you get is will killer robots come and take over because now they can learn, they're very like humans, that kind of intelligence is scary etc etc. I'm not really sure that learning to play Atari games quite gets you there but you can see where the, where the narrative goes. And this is quite close to some forms of memory that we know about already, not that episodic memory, but the, the other ha- half of that equation, which is called semantic memory, and this is the kind of thing that I got really interested in when we were in the memory network discussions, because there's a point in human development when you, the ability to plan comes comes out, In I think it's three or four years old, and um, this is when you start to take patterns, perhaps like a computer game patterns, recognize those patterns, and be able to predict something in the future. So the sun rises every morning, every time I turn right, there's a treasure chest, that kind of thing, and say, okay, next time it's the morning, the sun will rise, next time I turn right, yay, I get a treasure chest. And that kind of um, you know, recourse to the past, or the pattern in the past, to plan something in the future, well, that's memory. So we could say that these new media-friendly forms of artificial intelligence do have a form of artificial memory, um, but I didn't you know, actually think, well, that's that interesting. I don't think it gets us to killer robots. I think what I'm really interested in is if there was a new generation of technologies where we got closer to that episodic memory. So what I think is really interesting about human memory is the idea that we have a kind of autobiographical capability. So I, I tell and retell stories about my past. Um, my father tells and retells stories about the past that change every time, as at least they have over the last 30 years. Um, now that's, that's part of being human and something essential about that memory, almost that failure of memory that makes it really human. And And so I don't I think the interesting thing about technology and memory in the future will really come when we can start to make artificially those kinds of forms of human memory. Um, So almost make the failures of memory artificially. And that's the kind of thing I'd like to see more science fiction writers playing with. Hopefully they are. I know you just finished a book, so I can't (laughs) speak for that one. Um, And certainly more of our um, um, policy makers in government start to think about the kind of use of that technology for all of us and not just worry about search engines taking over the world. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Jess. Um, I'd like to hand over now to Adam Roberts to pick up.
2: Right, well, there we are. I've been handed the, uh, the, the, the flaming torch of inspiration I have to carry through, as a science fiction writer, some interesting speculative new modes of memory. And as I was coming in on the train this evening to this event, I was thinking, what could I do? What would be the good kernel to the start of a new science fiction story? And I think I, I've come up with one. So I'll talk you through how I've got to this place, which is by way of following on from some of the things that, that, uh, that Baz and Jess have been talking about. I am interested in the extended mind thesis. It seems to me to make sense that um, the other day I had to drive my daughter and her friends to Camberley, uh, and We had to park in one of those car parks where instead of putting money in a machine, you have to remember your, your registration plate number. And when you return to the car park, you type it into a, a screen and it tells you how long you've been there. And I w- happened to be in my wife's car, which is nicer and smells good. And I couldn't... <laughs> so I looked at the registration plate and I thought, oh, I could remember that or... I could take a photo with my phone, so that's what I did. So then the memory is in here, and it's still my memory. I'm still using it functionally to be able to go back to the car and get the, and pay the parking ticket and so on. Or equally, I am old enough to remember in the backward and abysm of time being pr- pr- forced to memorize poems in my English class at school, memorize Shakespearean monologues and so on. And part of me is glad I did that. It seems to be a mental discipline. But part of me thinks it's kind of a waste of time because if there's any factual or semantic content that I need to retrieve, I have about me a machine that has all the knowledge in the world a few finger taps away. So we could say that this is the extension of my memory that encompasses the globe. And that interests me. So I'm going to talk very quickly about what seems to me, the three key modes or valences of memory from the point of view of a science fiction writer looking for a hook or a conceit or a concept that I can then write a story about. And of those three, two, I think, have been quite well covered by science fiction. And the first is this idea of the extended mind, the idea that we can augment our mental faculties, including our memories, with clever technology and kit. And there I'm wondering, what would the the best dramatic potential be? If we go back to one of the founding figures of modern science fiction, H.G. Wells, he was certain that new technologies taking over the function of human bodies would lead to, would would alter the course of future human evolution. So he wrote a short story that was published in Pearson's magazine, I think, called Man of the Year Millions. And he imagined what a man would look like in the year million. And since we wouldn't need our arms and legs and muscles anymore, because we have machines who can do all that work much better than we can, he thought they would all just melt away. And that we would be left a huge head and one hand and big eyes. And he then turned this conceit of, of what the future human would look like into his Martians who invade in the War of the Worlds. The reason why the Martians look that way is not just that they're strange alien bug creatures. It's because they are evolved a million years further than we are. Mars is that much older than the Earth. And so they have shared all their bodily functions. And that's a problem for, for Wells and for lots of other thinkers around his time. That means you have to sacrifice lots of the bits of the body. Some of my favorite bits of the body, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm so keen on that idea. There's a second mode of memory which people have talked about uh, already, which is this idea of embodied memory, uh, and that's the idea that it, you can spend many thousands of hours learning to play the piano. But anyone who can play the piano will confirm after a while, the memory is no longer really in your brain. Uh, whatever Hugo said, we're, we're, he's a Nazi apparently. I had no idea. I was appearing. I mean, neuro in this sense. Euro, <laughs> come back and haunt <laughs> me. It's going to be my neuro <laughs> <laughs> Nazi. Um, But, you know, you're playing a piece of music and the memory is kind of in your fingers. You don't have to think about it anymore. Anyone who's learned to drive a car has that that knowledge. It's a, a painstaking process, learning how you do it. And then, in a manner of speaking, when you drive the car, you are remembering all these skills you have learned, but you're not consciously remembering them. You don't have to think about them. They don't pass through those neurons. They're just in the body. And that's also a very popular science fiction idea, so for someone of my generation, it makes me think of Joe, Joe 90. Does anyone here remember Joe 90? Well, there we are, you see. There are people here who are mature. <laughs> well, I, I find that hard to believe, looking at you. Um, Joe 90 was a, a, a super marionation kids cartoon from the 1970s. And Joe was a regular kid, but he could download skills and learn to, and then he would suddenly be able to fly a fighter jet or do whatever. A more up-to-date example, although not actually that much up-to-date, because I am still living in the past, would be the movie The Matrix, where people who have no skills can just download the body memory of how to fly a helicopter or how to do kung fu, and they, they flicker their eyes and then they go, I know kung fu which would be fantastic. I'd love to be able to say that. I'm not prepared to put in years of practice and all that. I'd love the idea that we can just acquire that body memory. So fair enough. I think those areas have been quite well covered, actually, by all sorts of science fiction writers. But this third area of memory, I don't think anyone has addressed that. So I think maybe I will write a story about this. In fact, as I was thinking about it, it occurs to me I'm not sure how much... Uh, neurological research or or philosophical investigation that has been about this as a mode of memory. And I'm talking about dreams. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about our memory of our dreams, which, as we all know, is a notoriously spotty and difficult business. I'm talking about dreams themselves as a mode of memory. That's what dreams are. They're our mind remembering the events of the day in order to arrange them and sort them out and and tuck them away so that our minds don't become overwhelmed with all the sense data that goes in. It's in a very literal sense, not in a metaphorical sense, in a very literal sense, when we dream, we are remembering. Now, we don't tend to think of it that way, I assume, because we like to think of memory as something rational and something that cognition is in charge of, something that we can... Evoke, we can summon memories or we can banish memories. Sometimes banishing memories is the harder task. That it happens in a, in a rational way that machines and computers can mimic. Uh, so, my iPhone is very good as long as the, its processing and its programming runs on logical, sequential, causal lines. We all know dreams do not work that way. They're not logical, uh, they're not causal, but they are memory. And they have a very important function in the brain. They have a very important neuroscientific function. So I'm wondering what it would be like to have a machine that could dream for you. You might say, well, I wouldn't want such a machine. I enjoy my dreams. Well, I don't enjoy the dream about the the gigantic spider that's trying to teach me Norwegian. That's a horrible dream. That's very very (laughs) alarming. But some of my dreams are quite pleasant. And you might think, well, I'm not sure I can imagine a machine that would be able to do that, because that's, that would require a machine to have the same non-logic as whatever part of the brain. Um, a, a Freudian would say the subconscious, but I understand that Freud is no longer in fashion on account of his big beard. That's very infradig in modern <laughs> neuroscience now, although not in philosophy. <laughs> in philosophy, a little trimmed beard, that's that <laughs> very good. Um but now, no, now we've got Jeremy Corbyn back and Karl Marx, he had a very, very big beard. Uh, what F- Freudian would call the subconscious part of the mind that works according to its own weird logic that we don't entirely understand. And the fact that we can't rationalize it, the fact that we can't cognitively map that in a, in a way that makes causal logical sense, is kind of the point of the dreams. So we would need to think of a machine that could do that. And we could think of the advantages such a a technical prosthesis might bring with it. Maybe it could dream more effectively than we can ourselves. Maybe we would wake every morning, not just refreshed, but rejuvenated, and with massively increased mental capacity. Maybe an artificial dream would be much more efficient at doing what it does than a natural organic dream, in the same way that an artificial machine for moving around, like a car, is much faster than... Using your legs, so that that's the idea. That's the nugget for a story that I've I've brought with me here tonight, and I will go away and write it. And since you were all present at the at the birth, um, like uh, uh, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein and that house on the the lake in Switzerland, I will I will give you all a, a discount when it finally comes out. <laughs> And uh, you, are, you heard it here first. So I will stop there for that minute because we want to hear what the,
5: the professional philosopher has to say. <laughs> yeah, i will hand over now to Barry Smith. Take... Thanks, thanks, Hugo. Um, so my fellow panellists have talked about everything other than memory. <laughs> uh, we've heard... <laughs> so, you know, me, old-fashioned. I thought I'd bring it back to the topic. So we've heard about learning, and I'll distinguish that from memory. We've heard about... Our iPhones you know am I my iPhone no uh, yes. Okay. yes you are you are yeah I think, I think uh, you are very i 'll tell you why you 're not in a minute um, and we 've heard we 've heard about neurons they, they, they might be close they 're certainly involved that 's good uh, we 've heard about embodied skills and we 've heard about dreams, um, all good, interesting topics, but not memory so you know, I'm, I'm really glad that Adam's got a creative life because he hasn't got creative dreams and that he just remembers stuff from his day. Uh, I, I have dreams like that, and it's very boring, but quite often I have dreams that surprise me, frighten me. I mean, things I wasn't anticipating, things I hadn't expected to happen before. And the interesting thing about dreams when you're having them, and it's very important, I think, and there are neurological insights from dreams, when you're in a dream... Things happen that are very strange, and during the dream you don 't notice and you don 't care in the when you wake, you notice so you 're inside and then outside you 're in water you 're dry you 're suddenly you know in one place and another somebody 's a man, then a woman, and so on and and at the time you don 't notice and the neuroscientist chris frith says that 's because when you 're dreaming, a lot of the frontal cortex closes down and you're 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 working with the remainder. And he said it's the nearest you'll get to experiencing what it's like to be brain damaged. That you're trying to make sense of very limited information, put it together skillfully. And at the time, it seems to make sense. But when you wake and you're kind of coming to and rational, you realize that doesn't make any sense at all. That's very strange indeed quite surprising. So I I don't think they're memories. Uh, learning from the past right Yeah, we have lots and lots of experience of things happening to us and that gives us a, a, a jump start on what is going to happen next so we can predict the future but that's not memory that's that's learning from the past and then predicting or anticipating what happens next learned or embodied skills very useful in fact we can use them as aids to memory tools so When I'm trying to remember my login PIN number, let's say, and I can't quite remember it, I just let my fingers go. And I might sometimes just dial it up and then think, oh, that's the number. So I can use that embodied skill to retrieve something that can serve for a memory, but it itself is not a memory. So what is a memory? Well, a memory requires at least two things. You remember an event, and the event must have happened, and the person who experienced the event must have been you. If either of those two things are missing, it could be a false memory, it could be something that masquerades as a memory, but it's not a memory. And there's something interesting about memories because sometimes, and this is related to dreams, sometimes you have a a memory where you are experiencing, you're looking out at what's happening And other times you have, and that's called a field memory, but you also have observer memories where you seem to be observing yourself. You look at yourself with something happening to you, very strange. But we can do that, think of your childhood, you often seem to see yourself, as you do in dreams, you can sometimes see yourself in dreams from that observed standpoint. Now... Either of those standpoints is not particularly like the standpoint that most people are collecting technological aids with at the moment, and that is the selfie. So here's a very bad idea you take lots of selfies, and selfies are showing you perspectives on yourself that you never occupied, because you don't look at yourself. You're in a scene, and you're getting an image. Didn't wasn't the perspective of you. So, so you don't all, have any mirrors in your house. All those years later <laughs> <laughs> I don't spend as much time in front of them as others, but you well. know, I speak for myself. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine what God gave me. But imagine, imagine that now you've collected all your selfies and you've put them on your you've loaded them up and you run a slideshow and you might think the whole of my life is flashing in front of me, but it won't be. The whole of someone's life looking at you would be flashing in front of you, but it wouldn't be your perspective. So these things are not going to help. So if you're going to do anything as a technological aid, try and take a photograph from the point of view of where you are at a significant moment. Better still, just look and pay attention. It's more likely you'll retain that memory. But if you really need the photograph, try taking it from where you are, because it's likely to match something you actually saw. So that will be an aid to memory, but by itself it won't be a memory. The reason you're not your iPhone is because if anything happens neurologically to you, you might lose your language with brain injury or deterioration. You might lose lots of um, specific forms of memory. Then your iPhone will just be a stranger to you. You might look at these images and they might mean nothing to you. It's not going to help. It's the direct connection that you have to have in your experience to past experience of you. That's what will tie you to your past. That's what will give you a sense of continuity. And it will come and go, and there will be gaps. But without that, I don't think we are the human beings we are. So that's what's important about memory.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much for everybody's different perspectives. So the way we're going to run the panel discussion is we're now going to invite panel members to tap me on the shoulder and say I want to jump in and complain about one of those things I just heard. And we'll do that for, for a little bit and then we'll come asking you to to nudge in and uh, ask questions to the panel. So I'll open it to the panel first. Does anyone want to pick up? I've got about eight different things to complain about here but I'll like the others to, to start first.
4: And can I ask you a question? Yes, you can. Um, I'm mainly here because I like asking Hugo questions. No, the... When Barry described all of that, I I think you could probably nod along to a lot of it because what I've understood from your research is that what you described is what you might call one type of long-term memory, but you talk about many of the other things as other forms of memory. And so in some ways that was a specific case of how you might define memory, maybe not how a neuroscientist would define it. So would you agree with that or not?
1: That's a That's a. Very good question. Uh, On one level, it's a very useful background Barry's brought in. So before even considering some of these terms, he's saying there's a you out there to have that memory. So philosophy does this amazingly good job of going, wait, wait, we missed some very basic important things before moving on. So in that regard, I would agree that you can't have a memory without you and something happening. But in a sense, a scar on your leg, you know, that's a memory, right? Your body has remembered something. It's stored it. It's changed You know, it's a memory, but it's not the kind of thing I'm that excited as a neuroscientist about scars. I'm interested in the way our thoughts um, can retrieve. We can go back in our mind and travel in the past um, and retain things and skills. So, yeah, I think Barry missed some of the beginning uh, neuromania, neuronazism that we saw for an eye. So I should say I'm trying to play devil's advocate a little bit. But at the same time, I do. I, if you look at the current neuroscience out there, there's some very strong claims. Some people will talk about this is memory when they see a rat freeze. Uh, and it's very different to the kinds of, of events and things we're looking at here. But in that technological world, those experiments going on in MIT, and I think, um, yes, Adam picked up on this a little bit about the different ways science fiction has moved. It is the idea of implanting memories, and that's been a science fiction goal for a long time. And sorry, a science fiction idea, but it's now become sort of science fact. If you diverge from what Barry said, so these scientists are now able to make a rat. They're able to implant into part of its brain a fake memory for something that's never happened to it. That can control what it can do. It can choose to do behaviours and express things that it shouldn't know. Very much like in the Matrix, where you know. I know I suddenly the main character knows Kung Fu. This rat doesn't know Kung Fu, but it knows, oh my god, I never want to go back in that box again. And so there is a real kind of movement forwards with the science, but I've rambled on far too long for my response to, to that. But I think Adam's itching to
2: Well, me. just in the sense that there's a Philip K. Dick short story with the truly wonderful title, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which was turned into not one but two not very good films called Total Recall. And the original... I mean, Philip K. Dick was a, was a philosopher of note, it seems to me. And the original idea he puts into that story is that you can go to a special kind of shop and buy memories. And that's as a, as a premise. The way he works it out as a story is his character, who's living this exciting, um, adventurous life where he travels to Mars and he fights and he gets the girl is recalled to reality by the fact that what he remembers is just much higher quality than ordinary human life. And that the real experience of, of being an embodied being is, is mostly banal and a bit dull. And we can tell that a memory is false because it's, it's better than the kind of memories we would acquire kind of, organically. No, she's pulling the face again. <laughs>
5: <laughs> so so this, this, this has got a long pedigree, and in fact, it's got a very good pedigree. Um, David Hume, the great Scot, thought you could tell the difference between memory and imagination because memories were more vivid. But he also accepted that liars who told the same story often eventually began to believe their lies, and they became more vivid than the reality And so vividness was not necessarily going to count. I mean, the the Philip K. Dick view about, you know, so when people say they can buy memories, they can buy false memories. False memories are no longer memories. They're no more memories than a toy gun is a gun. Just remember that. I mean, the word false is important here. There are also people who are absolutely convinced. We don't even need science fiction writers. The people are absolutely convinced that they've seen something they haven't. Many, many years ago in the, I think, mid-'80s, there was a a plane crash in Amsterdam where a transport plane came down on some tower blocks in the city, lots of debris. And some very enterprising psychologists went out and interviewed people a week later and said, you know, what what do you remember about this? And they all say they remember the TV images of the plane you know, hitting uh, the top of the tower blocks and the tail coming off. Now, of course, they had all the TV footage, so they know that nobody saw that. But people were not you know, they were not just making it up. They thought they had seen that because they'd read the reports and had some film footage, and they had just interpolated, they'd added to it. So I think it's true that when you tell or retell stories, uh, and, and you, you were talking about that uh, Jess. you were talking about retelling stories and I think that's right you embellish and you change and you add and you might add more detail and that's why I'm, I'm going to kind of suggest that like the neuroscientists, I think there are many types of memory, and the type of memory I'm much more interested in is smell memories, olfactory memories because we're very bad at naming smells, we're not good at doing that we're not good at kind of giving them labels or descriptions. If I give you out odors, you might say, hmm, yeah, I, that's familiar. And I'd say, what is it? And you say, I don't know, it's on the tip of my nose, I will say, because you can't quite get it. And that's why I think smell, because you don't use language, tends to get in there when it's associated with memory, usually with charged emotional memories, in a way which is unadulterated. And then you have what's called the Proust phenomenon, Years later, you smell a smell that seems to take you right back to your grandmother's kitchen or to your schoolroom or to something or a holiday, and it's, it's spooky. You feel the kind of aura of having that sense of it recreating the past for you or you re-encountering the past. So I think smell is probably much more important to actually put us directly in touch with experiences we had before, whereas I think ones which are visual, auditory, and embellished with language probably get reworked a little too much and they're not so reliable.
3: Can I just pick up on that? Um, I saw a film last night uh, called Alive Inside um, and this was short I think about two years ago and this was um, a guy in America who was working with people in in hospitals who had Alzheimer's Uh, and he brought this kit just an uh, an iPod and, and earphones and these people who were really just gone they, they didn't speak anymore hardly moved and he puts on um the earphones with music from that from their era and they completely responded the whole brain started to become alive again um so it's not just smell but also the auditory function that i think really can uh bring back people who've, who've got brain damage or alzheimer's
5: well i would i would say that i mean there's lots of work on this vicky williamson among others mm-hmm. is working on this And that memory for music or for songs tends to be rather isolated and tends not to bring back other memories. I mean, we hope that by getting people with dementia or with Alzheimer's to to hear some music that that would bring something back. In fact, what it brings back is the ability to sing that song. Mm -hmm. So um, we see these very sad scenes where you can go to see an elderly person, you can sing them a song, they can join in, they're (coughs) animated and then at the end of the song they say, who are you? Because it will not bring the rest back. So it's a very localized memory, and I think that points up the fact that memory does have these rather isolated, Mm. siloed, parceled kind of existences. And the same was true of the hope of smell, because people thought, well, if you could uh, get people to smell smells from their past, that might also revivify memory. But of course the other thing is that People with um, people who are aging lose their sense of smell, and the loss of smell is actually an indicator often to your advance warning of dementia and Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. So it's not a very good test. Mm-hmm. Can I ask
2: one question then, Barry? Because I can see that we're not going to agree on the, <laughs> on the question of um, the extended mind thesis, that you're not a believer, yeah. and I'm not going to make you a believer Oh, it's a shame, isn't it? I was hoping to maybe the scales would fall from your eyes. So the just need a good argument. okay. So the the argument, the counter argument you give is that so to take the it seems to me that once I've taken a photo of my wife's car registration number, I have that memory. I don't have the memory in my brain but I, have, I can access it any time that I have my phone about me by turning my phone on, which we've been told not to do because it interferes with the podcast, so I, I can't access it at the moment. But I can access it. So it seems to me I don't see the, 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 the essential difference between me retrieving that information from my phone and me retrieving that information from the back of my head so that in the way that I know what my wife's birthday is or what our anniversary is, I honestly... Do I don't now? Your, so just to so your your argument against that is if I had some kind of brain damage, then this information would might well lose meaning to me, and I wouldn't be able to place it. But isn't that true of the brain itself? I could have brain damage, and then elements of my memory would no longer make sense to me in my skull.
5: So I'm forever writing down people's phone numbers on pieces of paper. It's a bit like taking a photograph of a registration of a car, and then. A week later, you think, what the hell is that? Who's that? You sometimes dial it to find out. Oh, <laughs> oh. You've got no idea why you did it. So that's, that's not a memory. That's, a, it's a, that's a, memory. It's a trace of something which was a memory. You but, remember the number, but not the well, name of the person. I think, still a memory. No, I, th- I, think, I think you need to... It, it's an aid to memory. So what's an aid memoir. What you have to do is you have to say, oh, I want to find my wife's registration number oh, I remember, I remember, I took a photograph of it. Or when you look at your photographs, you say, what's that? Oh, I remember, that's a photograph of my wife's registration. In other words, if you didn't have that part, it means nothing. <laughs> but then that, that seems to me that's
2: what happens in the brain anyway. You might well say, I need, to remember, I need to remember the anniversary. Oh, wait a minute, I remember, it was the summer because we got married in the summer, and you can trace the memory back through a series of mnemonics in the brain. It's exactly the same thing as tracing it from this database in here. They're just different. Look,
5: we've always had big memoirs. I mean we've always had things that we write down on bits of paper, and that's no. why we write down books. But you know, so that's we've got to remember them. But it's you still need to have access to that. And without your brain functioning with memory. There's nothing that that's going to mean to
1: you. Let me jump in with a bit of science fiction here, perhaps, and think of <laughs> actually go back to Jessica and the idea of future technology. What if you were to implant, not this, this phone, I'm going to take this phone for a moment, put it carefully back down, but the idea that that actually might be implanted within, connected into your synapses and change and regulate certain proteins and different structures within your brain that interface with memory. Uh, what's, at what point would you say, oh, that is the extended mind? Anything that's not biological is not, I mean, do you have any opinion on that?
5: It's not, it's not the biological barrier. It's the fact that it's kind of out there without a connection to me. Now, if you if you've put that chip into me, it's not going to lie there undefrosted. It's only going to be useful if it's integrated into the circuitry of the brain that makes use of it in some so way. So if it is, then if what? If it is, then that's not the extended mind. That's just a new hardware or wetware for sustaining the mind-brain relationship, which is fine.
1: Okay, great. Do you have any
3: comments on that?
5: Yeah, I, I don't agree. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really.
3: Our, our entire behavior has changed with these new technologies. Just if there's a ringtone uh, of a WhatsApp or a text message, you respond. Uh, so your entire behavior is, although it's invisible, there's a very real connection there. And people's behavior has changed in, in lots of subtle different ways. So it doesn't really matter if this chip is implanted and integrated into your brain. It's the, it's the very fact that our, um, I don't know, cognition and, and, and memories are kind of really connected to these kinds of uh, technologies. And it, it's nothing to do with a material connection. It's invisible, but very real.
5: I, I, I mean, I agree with that. And I, 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 but that doesn't do anything to the original thesis. What I do think is happening is that our bodies are changing as a result of our phones. Many of you, certainly the guys and and anybody else who puts their phone in their pocket, will have had that phantom experience of Mm. having a buzzing on the leg, which you now get, which makes you think, oh, my phone is ringing, and you keep looking at it, and it's not actually because the brain has learned that you get that vibration. And now, without getting it, you sometimes send signals back down there, and it activates it. So the body is changing for sure, and that's having an effect on the mind. And you look at your phone far more often than you should for that reason. So I, I agree with that.
3: Yeah, thank you. Right,
5: I'm going to
1: try and move out to the audience. So I just thought I'd check if anybody else wanted to make any last-minute ditched attempts to fight. No, okay. So I think there's some roving mics. So we'll take, we'll take, as I go through, I'll ask you perhaps two different people to uh, give questions, and I'll take those, and then we'll, we'll collect those and move on. Do you want to? Uh... Yes, sorry, delayed it from a memory expert at the front.
6: <laughs> Hello, um, Barry, I agree with quite a lot of what you've said and I disagree heartily with some of it as well, I'm afraid. Um, in terms of just, just to pick up on what you said about the memory in music, I think you're talking about people with extreme dementia who in which case, those memories have been neurologically erased so nothing is going to be able to really access those Whereas I think the point that, that you were making was that it's a good trigger for memories that are still there. So I think that there was a bit of um, they, they're two different that's things. Fine, yeah. Fine, fine. Um, but but what I really what I really wanted to pick up on was your you've you've talked about truth and about whether a memory is a real thing and you've talked about false memories. And I want to know really from anyone on the panel whether they think either from a psychological perspective or a philosophical perspective, whether a memory has to be entirely accurate for it to be a memory, because no memory is entirely accurate. It's all made up of elements, of bits and pieces that we reconstruct. So I want to know, at what point does it, do you believe it stops being a true memory and becomes a false memory?
5: If he wants to know the... Adam wants to know his wife's registration number, right? And he might consult his phone because it's an aid memoir and he remembers he's got it there. It either is or isn't that registration. I mean, if he says my wife's car has been stolen and he reports it to the police, there's something really true and accurate about giving the right number. He could just say, well, I'm just going to make it up from bits and pieces. And they might say, there's no such car or that's somebody else's car. That's no good. He's actually got to get the right registration. So I'm glad he's got it in his car, and I'm glad he remembered. He's got it in his phone, and I'm glad he remembered to put it there, because that's actually going to be useful.
2: I think this is one of the places where we do disagree, because it seems to me that kind of factual, semantic memory of things and, and phone numbers and <clears throat> Excuse me which is a, a part of memory, of course it is. It's some of that stuff that we have to remember, that these fantastically technologically advanced aid memoir, if that's what you want to call them, help us with, is only a small part of what memory is. The memories that matter to us most are affective, are memories about how we felt at a certain time, what it's like to be with someone, what, what those sorts of things. And those are not true or false in the way that a, a, a car number plate is the right number or the wrong number.
5: I think it's either your wife's face or it isn't. And if you're having those effective memories with someone that's not your wife's face, then I think <laughs> she's got every reason to worry about it. And on, on that note, we'll move to a new question. We <laughs> right. okay,
1: we've had well, I'll come back to you. Um, I was take a question from right from the back up there. Uh, sorry, just to give the, the team a lot of extra work. And this time, maybe we could take that one question and hold it. If you could keep your question brief, and we'll hold on to that and take one more question, then take it to the panel. Okay, thank, thank you. you.
2: Um, uh, Professor Smith, you said that uh, dreaming at night was effective, was, was equivalent to being brain damaged. How would you or anybody explain that you can go to bed at night with a problem, and your brain damaged brain then works it out during the night, and in the morning you've got the answer?
1: Yeah, and we have another question there. Oh, sorry, uh, yep, the lady here, yep. Thank you. Sorry, um,
7: yeah, it seems to me that um, Professor Smith has sorry. kind of nailed it when he started talking about, it didn't use the word self, but I think that's really what you're talking about. It's the the, I, I've been thinking about memory from, um, from starting with the question, what's the function of memory rather than the nature of memory? And my understanding is that the function of autobiographical memory is to tell us who we are, so that we can tell ourselves who we are, then we can tell each other who we are, and we can form communities and we can communicate. And and all of that presupposes that that the point is that there is a self, there's a you who's experiencing the other thing that I wanted to say was that my understanding is that memory is memories are really the things that are delivered. They aren't necessarily things that are held wholesale. So the point is semantic memory, all these facts, uh, even sense, sense experiences, sense perceptions, and so on. We gather them together, we recount a memory, We say recalling, but we're recounting a memory. We're telling a story. That's the point of it being autobiographical. And that's why it may be different each time. But again, this is all about there being a self that gathers together the data. Okay, great.
1: About the self, you're asking the panel to maybe reflect on the role of the self in memory. So I think Barry can pick up the first question and um, repeat, if you could go back to what the question was, and then maybe... So so the first question was, if
5: if, um, dreaming's a little bit like working with very limited materials and a bit like being brain damaged, how can it be that we sometimes think very hard about a problem, go to sleep, and in the morning we've got a solution? Um, Okay, I think that's because we get outside of the normal constraints. So here's a little confession. I sometimes have some of my most original thinking and philosophy when I've got a hangover. And it may be that enough of my brain is not going down the usual route again and again, and it, and it forces me to just you know deviate and find some new connections. And I think it's the finding of new connections, the having of more possibilities that's there. But having the possibilities isn't enough. You've then got to do the rational work of taking those possibilities and applying them to the problem. But I do think... Freeing yourself from the cr- constraints is one way you get to be creative for problem solving. I'd just like to actually move. Back. So if, actually, Baz was
1: going to pick up the re- Sebastian and pick up the response to the second question. Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone self- wants to respond sorry, to, your, answer, to Barry first. No, yeah, what
3: are you, no, no. Um, sorry, I, I had something to say about the, the question about the self, which is which is very interesting, and you're absolutely right. And it struck me something um, that, something that Barry said earlier about this idea that. Um, we use memory uh, as a form of kind of creating a, a whole continuous self. and But this is not really the case, I think. I mean, memory is often very fragmented. We uh, reinvent all the time uh, like a photocopy machine. Every time it's slightly different. Every time we recount it, we use different... Uh, words, different uh, registers to, to think of that memory. Our perception is highly subjective and it changes. And so that is very important, I think, to, to acknowledge that. And of course, we want to experience a, a continuous self, but this is really not the case. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe Hugo can, can pick up on this, but there is also now neuroscientific evidence that sort of uh, states that the self is also just a projection. It's, it's something that we want. We want to have a whole self. But we are all over the place. We're all human beings. We're contradictory. Uh, and this is, of course, where literature comes in. Um, literature has been very keen to exploit uh, and, and, and unpick and analyze Um, how the self is kind of invented as a fiction. I'm thinking in particular of of, of post-modernist fiction in in the 80s and 90s that really looked at how um, the subjective interpretation of ourselves and the world constantly uh, created this mutable self. So I think the, the continuous self that Barry was kind of celebrating is really a fiction, and if we acknowledge that, uh, then we can also understand what memory is like It's not factual It's always something different it's, it's in terms of autobiographical memories, I think
1: I'll make a very quick comment And then we'll move to the next um, Thank you very much, uh, Sebastian I'll make a very quick comment And we'll move to some more questions from the floor uh, We had a question earlier that relates back to that About um, to what extent memories are true or false And there was a work in the 80s suggesting That in fact you can distinguish between declarative memories Of which there's truth You can say, yes, I did have eggs for breakfast. And Barry would pick up on that. But then there's all these things called non-declarative memories where it just makes no sense to say, is it true or false? This is how, you know how your muscles move, you can't explain all the mechanics of your body, you just know how to do something, and there's no truth to it in but that then, sense.
2: Then surely there's also a kind of intermediary zone, which goes back to, what, to the, the, the question we've just heard. If I, so the academic term has started again, and I went in today to my place of work, and I was lecturing and, and teaching seminars and so on, and the last time I did that was before the summer. So if I think back to the teaching I did before the summer, if we followed a strict kind of Barry line, then there must be a truth to my memory. And I think and I think, well, I did a good job teaching last term, and well, I'm a good lecturer. Then that's going to build my my subjectivity in a way that is confident and that will make me a better lecturer because I'm more confident. If I think back and think, I'm such a terrible teacher, my my memories of that term are just I was awful all the time. I will be less confident and I will be a worse teacher in the future. And there is no, I think, objective truth as to whether I was a brilliant teacher or a terrible teacher because it's not the kind of thing that admits of absolute truth. Ask your students, I'm sure they know.
5: Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, I've said that a lot of times to Barry. so. So, So I think people are confusing things. People think if there's truth, if memory requires truth, then we must be able to tell whether something's true or not. That's different. That's about knowledge, right? So... For something to be a memory, it must be true. That doesn't guarantee that you from the inside know, is this a memory or a false memory? Otherwise, there would be no problem. We'd always know. So insisting on objectivity is not insisting on omniscience. Is different. Um, and it's true that you might convince yourself, I, I was great. Wow, I gave some great lectures and that, that's boosting and you know, uh, self-serving bias is a good thing. Uh, or you might feel, you know, depressive realist and you might think, God, I was really pretty awful, and then you might feel bad. But that doesn't settle whether the memory is right or not. What settles whether memory was right or wrong is about what actually happened, right? So, I mean, I don't think we're confusing knowledge and our ability to know the truth with whether something is true or false. There are some facts, and we can get them right or wrong, and as Hugo said, there's declarative, and then... When you distinguish between declarative and then something more procedural, mm. I would say that's not a memory. I'd say that's embodied skill, and it's know-how. I know how okay. to swim. I don't think it's a memory. I know how to swim. So, so a lot of psychologists
1: would think of it, memory,
5: as just any change in your,
1: your nervous system that's stored which can be a very minute, like the ability to know don't put your hand down on that hot pan is one of the most basic things you don't want to do, or pick up your wife's car in the wrong time and day. Uh, so I'm going to move down to the lady at the front who has a question, and then we'll take maybe one more question with that. Ah, great, thanks. So we'll get this lady first and then a question at the back. And another question there. Great. Thank you.
8: Thank you. Um, Two points, one one very short. Um, The loss of a sense of smell can also be a warning sign of brain tumor. Um, And that can be often fixed. Um, What about the whole issue of cultural memory? I had a ridiculous thing happen earlier today. I've lived over here for years and years and years. I know that the the 14th of October is written 14 October not October 14th. But this morning I was in a hurry. I was buying a ticket to something. It said 14 October, no, it said 15 October, 1,400 hours, you know, 1,400. I thought it was for the 14th of October, looked in my diary, didn't have anything there, went trekking across town to buy a ticket to something, which I couldn't really afford, and realized later in the day I had three other things going on that day. But I had, so I had looked at it, automatically gone into my own cultural memory October 14th. Okay. And as people are moving and moving and with the whole migration around the world, the global migration that's happening now, I would think we're going to be running into this sort of cultural automatic memory and perhaps having less right. yeah. understanding of each other. and not, Right, going, I'll hold on to that, that, that idea.
1: That's a very, I think, the idea of cultural memory at that level, and perhaps others we can bring out. I'll hold on to that for a moment and go to a question up there, and we'll come back to letting the panel answer that. We'll see.
9: Hiya. Um, yeah, I mean, I basically start with being completely sort of supportive of um, Professor Barry Smith's position, really, and I think there is a real confusion going on in terms of memory and the relationship to the self and the mind-brain distinction and there's not been enough discussion in the panel of the mind as a concept with memory as a concept within the mind as opposed to the mind the brain as a concept so maybe we're too quick to get rid of the Freudian kind of root and thinking I think there's a lot to be done there's a lot of really good research at the moment in terms of understanding mentalization and the development of conscious consciousness Uh, as a concept and where does consciousness and that's like you know the awareness of the self in relation to others and that self come from and i think that's been really missed apart from barry smith's point really and in saying that i mean the 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 questions i suppose um the reason i'd lead to a question if that's right um so because the nature of memory has changed rather you know the way we use memory rather than memories changed which is why i would really disagree with um, is it Adam's position? You know, so with the phone, we use memory. The memory, as Barry Smith said, is, is the knowledge that it's in the phone. We're using our memory. We need to store less things. And that relationship to truth in the real world, you can have um, the fact of your experience as opposed to the fact of the number plate. So that can change. I can mentalize new. I can have felt really angry at a person earlier. That's my memory that I felt angry I can change in relationship to the truth of what actually went on in that situation. I can change the fact of my experience, which changes my memories late, later down the line when I rethink it. And the bit, I'd, sorry, the, the question at the end is the way I'd sum that up is you threw in kind of the idea, I know just as a quick point, of the scar as a memory. And I suppose I'd ask the panel is a scar a memory based on all that mind body perspective that we're actually looking at?
1: Okay, great. That's two two points. One is about the cultural memory, and the other is about to what what do we really call memory? Is a scar a memory? And where are we going to stop calling something a memory? Who would like to pick up
3: the cultural memory?
5: That's that's Baz. That's
1: Baz. Baz is getting the
3: fingers pointed at, <laughs> and the literary expert. Um, yeah, um, cultural memory is hugely important. It is it is absolutely changing and. Uh, I, I'm not from this country as well and, and I, I do have sometimes it depends on your state of mind and um, if you are hangover like, like Barry yes, your mind functions differently and you may slip Why back not? into <laughs> a different mode of thinking and, um, and this for me, uh, just to go back to, to the other uh, question it, it also kind of uh, underscores the idea that the extended mind thesis is, is quite correct. It isn't just simply the brain that works, but it is all sorts of contexts which have a historical layer within your personal life that determine how your mind works. So it isn't just in the brain, but it's also um, the various different contexts. The way in which you were educated, your gender, uh, your, the level of technology that you enjoy, because uh, we're all very, very privileged with our mobile phones. So um, it's kind of, you know, in a way, a luxury problem. So. Um, These problems will get more and more complex, I think, in in the years ahead, certainly as technology will um, increase. Um, And in a way, maybe Barry can say something about this. And one of the things that I concluded in in the the book of memory that we've kind of all co-written is that we need a, a different approach to the position, the point of view as Barry uh, talked about this earlier. For instance, big data, the culture of big data, um, we must occupy a different, almost transhuman kind of uh, position in understanding how memory archiving works. Um, maybe, maybe Barry can uh, jump in yeah. there. Yeah,
5: I, I think this comes back to the second question, which is that we're changing the notion of memory. So we talk about having a lot of memory on our phones or our computers, and we need more memory. And that's okay, but we have to understand that that's an extension of the term. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy, if, if we can have scars on our legs being memory, then I'm quite happy to join with Hugh Johnson and think the wine remembers the weak harvest with the slight dilution in the finish. I mean, that's fine for me. That's memory. Um, but that's an extended sense of memory. So it's not that we've extended the mind. It's that we've extended memory beyond the mind. And we're talking about various things that, I mean have traces. And, and, you know, I think Baz is absolutely right. You know, we are going to have to think really hard about how we, we interface with those, quote, memories, especially with big data. Huge issue. What's the human data interface going to look like, especially since there are vast amounts of information organized in a way that's beyond our powers of organizing? That matters.
1: Thank you very much, Barry. I'm just going to actually jump in and I'm going to take A couple more questions in the audience, but I actually want to just ask something from Jess while we're in here, Mm -hmm. because she picked up something early on in her her intro about the the nature of these systems we're interacting with, phones we've heard a lot about, and also artificial networks. And it seems to me that we're talking about memory now, and very much like we access, we write down notes, we draw scribbles on tables to help us remember things, Um, but very nice scribbles. But um, what doesn't seem to be happening at the moment is, or very little to my experience, is Proactive teaching through artificial agents about what we, how to improve our own memories on a daily basis. I don't go into my phone to have it teach me things. I access it to get information. And I don't know whether Jess has some, any, any thoughts on that, because that to me seems like a different way we'd be interfacing with technology in the future.
4: So, I, I, you know, one of the pervasive fantasies that's been in science fiction since the 60s, probably before, um, is that you'll have the amazing personal assistant who will provide <laughs> that registration number without you having to scroll or get you know find the, the right email the right photo um but i am a reformed philosophy undergraduate so i can't really disagree with barry on some of what he means by human memory <laughs> it's a bit scary i read his papers when i'm you know a decade ago um but the, um i think i think what i find interesting is the aspects of that i wouldn't maybe won't call them memory we'll call them extended bits of memory yeah. but but our relationship with them is changing and as we see Siri or whatever you know Microsoft is going to come up with next it's a bit like that how does their proactive role in our life change the way our our real memories um, actually operate Mm -hmm. and I think one of the kind of nice thought experiments around that is when it, it reminds you of something that you don't want to know yeah. And whether and whether that is memory or not. So if you you know if we block these things that yeah. are coming <laughs> into yeah. our lives, yeah. is that memory or not? And I, I, one of the famous experiments around traumatic memory is is the way that they teach people to re-remember an experience. So people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder are taught to re-remember that trauma, perhaps, on the battlefield in a way that's a better story. So it ends with them meeting that person in hospital rather than them having their leg blown off. And I, I just interesting to understand that relationship between factual memory and our emotional relationship with mm-hmm. things that are thrown at us. I think it com- complicates things a little bit because it's not just about the truth or f- falsehood of something anymore. It's about the screens you put between yourself yeah. and that truth
1: or falsehood. Great. Thank you very much for that. I'm going to jump to the, some people with hands up. I think there's somebody ooh, over here. Oh, that's got, Hello, that's, that's that's a got everyone up. going. <laughs> got that there's a lady over here who was waiting earlier. And keep I your hands know. up. So I'll take <laughs> two more questions, one from the lady over here, and then... Hello. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, somebody's grabbed it before. Yeah.
5: Okay, I'd like, to, um, I'd like to hear some of the panel's uh, comments on um, the ugly duckling
3: and um, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Right, okay, On question one.
1: Okay, thank you very much. And then there's a lady at the end. There is it? Yep.
9: Um, it's kind of links into the last kind of question you were talking about, um, and making a, using technology, I guess, to make a more comprehensive version of our kind of organic memory. Um, there's a bit of a phenomenon, I think, of people who can who have very extensive memories and can claim to remember every day of their life but they don't really seem to enjoy it you know they remember very traumatic experiences they hold grudges if we are going to use technology to expand our memory like that is it really desirable and do you think right. we should do it
1: that's a very good useful question i'll take one more question because i think we'll take that and um yeah, there's a chap here i think there's just a lady up there i think you've been waiting a while is that right yeah with the glasses yeah that lady just there yeah sorry i'll come back to you <laughs> so we'll take these we'll get a little answer so we've got okay great
10: Um, Okay, so my question is um, a bit about this extended memories and experiences. So there's a um, kind of well-known or used um, thought experiment uh, experiment in philosophy which is called the experience machine. Um, And very shortly, it is whether or not you would be willing to enter into a machine and through that machine experience your life as if you were living your real life, but actually you were just sitting in this machine and getting all these inputs to make you experience that. Um, I'm bringing this up based on a claim that I picked up, and correct me if I'm wrong, from you, Adam, saying that real, exper- real physical experiences um, have more value than experiences conducted through a robot or through um, an extended measure, like an aid development. Um So I just want to say maybe actually in line with this thing about how can technology help us with our memory and through our experiences and kind of to fulfill a broader sense of that and ask the panel as to where does that, where on that scale does a memory go from being valuable to invaluable based on its kind of trueness to your personality and whether it's too live or too artificial.
1: Great, thanks. So, two questions, I think, from that set I'll pick up on. The ugly duckling sounds very interesting, but actually those two, I think, for the panel are more focused. So first of all, maybe we could take, Adam might want to respond to that last question, and then perhaps um, Jessica might respond to the other one about, what would it it be bad? What could the bad things about the technology? Okay.
2: So yes, I'm not sure I'd say that the uh, physical experience is more authentic. I wonder if we're thinking back to when I was talking about this Philip K. Dick story, and we can remember it for you wholesale. And the point of the story is no one would go to a shop that sold memories in order to buy a dull or banal memory, in the same way that you don't go and buy a novel that is is boring. You want a novel that's more exciting than your life. You want to go and see a film that's more thrilling than your day-to-day existence. That's what it's there for. And that's the the moral of that story. For myself, as it happens, especially since uh, I became a father and I've got two kids now, um, I, I do take the force of that old Chinese curse, may you live through interesting times. My happiest memories are the memories of the last 13 years, of my kids growing up, when almost nothing has happened, and I'm very glad that very little has happened. This is exactly the environment you want to raise kids. And that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm craving memories that are more intense or more vital than the ones that I have.
1: Great. So the question over here earlier was about um, memories, and, and in fact there was an idea that you can... It was about. Five years ago now, a group of, of uh, people were discovered to have highly superior... Well, yeah, it's debatable, Highly superior... The Neuronauts. A group of, bunch of <laughs> and,
5: Neuronauts and <laughs> insist on that. Okay, let's give some decorum.
1: Um, so these people um, who called highly superior autobiographical memory... Uh, people, uh, claim some of them to remember every single day of their entire life back to when they're very small. And many of them have been tested and shown, wow, they really can do this. There's a group of at least 11 of them that fulfill this crazily good experience. And the first person, like the lady said, had a horrible life. She remembered everything, hated it, was obsessive, it was awful. And then they found a guy who just works as a television host and loves it. No problem. So that, <laughs> that, that idea is not really true. It's not supported. But the idea you picked up on was... Maybe it wouldn't be so good, and I wonder if Jessica has got some ideas about how that might relate to technology in the future, or maybe maybe Sebastian on the literature of that might be something interesting.
4: There's um, a technology that was really famous a couple of years ago, actually when me and Baz first started um, talking about these themes, called life-logging, which is when people get these cameras around their necks that take pictures every 30 seconds, so you don't need to have this incredible, highly specialised ability, but you can well, maybe not fake the memory because it's not inside your brain but or mind, um, but you have some of that function on the outside. And um, I guess, yes, it would be horrible if you had traumatic experiences, but there's, a, there's another limitation of that kind of technology which might be um, reduce the enjoyment of memory, perhaps, which is that if things are remembered or your aid memoir stops you from kind of the imagining bit of memory, so that retelling of stories, the thing my dad does over and over again, um, then I think that is probably bad, not in a traumatic way, but in a, in a part of the function of memory of, of telling other people and myself who I am. Well, I lose that if there's something in front of me that's telling me that's not really how things were. And so it, in some sense, there's a, there's a bad tech angle, but it's not a kind of really horrible tech angle.
1: Right. I might just actually move on. Sorry about if you had any quick points for me? No, no. It's,
3: it's from a narratological point of view, and, and this is to do with, with trauma therapy, I think, at the moment, and storytelling has got a really vital role to play. In, in the sense that we, when you've got a traumatised person you, you don't necessarily need to um, access the truth in order for it to work through. But you need to create kind of a, a narrative arc, uh, a kind of a trajectory that allows you to for, kind of forget or reach an end point, a conclusion. Uh, and, and therefore, the memory, you don't need to access the, the truth of the memory. I think that's very important. So you need to have an end point, and then you can move on. That is the point of, of trauma Great. therapy, I think. So we're running towards the end of time. I'd just like to go through and get the last set of questions. People
1: are burning. You certainly are waiting to take your question. So any others? We can maybe take three last questions, and I'll sift through. I think you have been waiting a long time over there, but there's some people here who had their hands up. So, yes, if you'd like to ask your question.
2: At the beginning of the lecture, you uh, said there are many facets of memory, but the main two facets of memory are short-term memory and long-term memory. So my
1: question to the panel is neurology, uh, neurology or whatever you call it, Is that which memory is the strongest in the mind? Because most
2: uh, Alzheimer's sufferers seem to still retain their long term memory, but suffer very badly from retaining their short term memory.
1: Right. So we'll hold on to that. Thank you much. Which is the more important memory? Um, I'll take, there's a chap up there who's waiting. You two there, I'd like to take you two. And then there's a chap over there. We'll see what we can get through the questions. Yeah. The green job, yes.
9: Yes, thank you. Okay. um, With um, so many sort of really handy, very instant nowadays memory aids, we don't really need to work so hard potentially to sort of commit things to memory. We don't need to learn great swathes of text when we're doing English exams and things like this. What's the benefit? Because technology is meant to improve things, and you talked about bad tech, but there must be good tech. What could we do with the spare capacity? Has anyone got any ideas, particularly Jessica, but maybe everyone else?
1: Great, okay. And there's a person right next to you just there. If you could very quickly give us your question.
5: Yeah, my mother has no short term memory. Is she less than human?
1: Great, okay. <laughs> and then there's a chap over here with the green another green shirt. And I think there might be one I'll take one last question from the man waiting there in a moment.
5: Hi, I was just wondering if um instincts or sort of stuff in your
3: DNA counts as a memory. Mm-hmm. Um and if it doesn't, why not?
1: Great, okay, that's a very and one last question we have the chap oh there's two there. Okay, it will be really nice and take those last two questions, and then we'll go to the kind of push to see who wants to grab for the question. Hi, thank you. Uh, NSA and other organizations like this are recording all our data,
5: mm-hmm.
1: everything we do on the Internet, and this will only get more progr- uh, progressive as time goes on. They, in effect, own our memories true. Does this mean they have a power over cultural, culture's memory? And can this influence culture? Can they influence this culture with this data? Mm. And does this frighten you? Okay,
5: that's
1: thank great. That's a very clear question. And the last question was a chat there with the jacket on with the hand up. That's the last question we'll take, and then we'll go to sift through these. Many. <laughs> there we go. We've got enough. We got I can't enough. remember. Yeah, it's a memory so, test for the panel. So I've got a very,
2: very quick question, <laughs> and that's uh, I think truth is a red herring, and I think you know, we should not rest on that or even discuss that. I think that's just out of the sphere of what memories are. I think they're all false. They're all relative to the individual, or that's their frame of reference. But I think the representation, I haven't finished yet before you you scream. (laughs) I mean, I think all memories, to some extent, are dynamic representations of a web of different semantics, And starting from those, you get lots of incongruencies, you get, you know, sort of doubts, you get things that not logically are formed together, and you nurture them. I mean, it's it's, it's through experiences, through understanding that web, do we develop a sense of sensitivity, I suspect.
1: Great. So thank you very much for all those last questions. Um, I'm going to pick up on some of these. I think the the two that stood out from those for me were the question about. NSA, and perhaps Facebook coming and perhaps in capturing our memory is a very interesting one, and the one about instincts and, in fact, DNA. So I might respond very quickly to that and then bring the others out. So the, the DNA instinct one is something we've not got into, which is, for example, how does a monarch butterfly know it has to fly north after it's born? How did it do that? It's obviously stored a memory in the DNA about the direction relative to the magnetic field of the Earth to do that. It's not the kind of memory. Again, is that a memory is, is another question, but it's not something that often comes up in these debates, there's not a lot of research, as far as I'm aware, on how you pass memories through DNA particularly well. So that's something to answer that quickly. I suspect the NSA, Facebook, people jumping around here, and then we will come back to the, the final killer on the falsity of memory. Right? Do you, do you like I mean to come
4: NSA in? and whether they own my cultural in memory? Facebook. In Facebook, um, in can fact. We have a chat afterwards. <laughs> 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 um, God knows. Nice. Um, I think. I think. If we, if we do take the thesis seriously, which we heard earlier, which is that mem- memories are in part the function of them is to tell stories about ourselves and our identity and retell them to others, well, unless they're really starting to do that, then maybe they don't <laughs> own those cultural memories, but I don't know if they are or not. Um, someone else had a question about the benefit. Yes. I need to think about them more clearly. Um, of new technologies. And I think coming back to kind of a generation that consume their news online more than they do through a very well-narrated TV channel. Um, I think some of those new technologies provide us with new inputs and ways to create memories that are more diverse, allow us to have wider conversations um, and better collective memory, Um, and this is really stretching the notion of memory well beyond where Barry would be happy, but I think there is is some value to the shareability of those kinds of technologies in the way that I can't share what's inside my head um, other than telling quite specific stories about it.
1: Baz, you will do so, I'm now sort of having taken that, take Baz and then I'll come back to you two for a last fight it out. But,
3: Baz, <laughs> yeah, do, you, provo- yeah, but do just, some provoking as well. Follow briefly on the NSA and, and the harvesting of, of data uh, by all sorts of companies. Uh, these form our kind of collective unconscious, I think, at the moment. And you're asking whether we can be influenced. I'm not quite sure. I think there is another pernicious kind of uh, uh, development going on. It is the, the trawling through without permission, uh, also harvesting data, selling it off to companies. Um, and this is something that we really should, I don't know, uh, 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 take a look at and, and I don't know, maybe protest uh, slightly more. I think we're at the start of a development, and um, we should kind of uh, create a new ethics. Uh, surrounding this kind of uh, uh, development. And I think that's something that we should put on the, on the political agenda. Great. I mean, I'll just
1: maybe pick up the... the there was an asked question, about which is more important, long-term or short-term memory? They're both very, very important to your life, uh, and neither is particularly more important, I would say. Maybe other people would agree or disagree.
2: Well, but the gentleman's but, mother, yeah. who has lost her short-term memory, is still clearly a human being. So in that sense... Um, it's, it's not constitutive of your know, humanity, is it? So.
5: Well, I think it's very worrying when uh, you also lose your long-term memory, too. I mean, complete loss of memory, so there's nothing left, is where people will say of their nearest and dearest, this isn't the person I know, and I think that person has gone. But um, look, relativism, oh dear. Um, look, uh, people who love relativism say, all truth is relative except that one. Right. Because that's got to be absolutely true. Otherwise you say all truth is relative, I say all truth is absolute, and since relativism is true, then I'm right. So all truth is absolute. So so it's self defeating. It's not it's not a good it's not a good view.
3: Te- <laughs> technically
5: it's very difficult. There are clever, clever people, some of them on the west coast of the US, who are trying very hard to make it consistent, but it's hard. But um look, you know, you say truth's a red herring, but Gee, I hope you remember how to get home to your home tonight and not someone else's home. Gee, I I hope you remember your nearest and dearest and your loved ones and you truly recognize their face instead of finding some stranger in the street and thinking, yeah, that's a friend of mine. So, you know, I hope you remember truly how to get home and what the route is and how you do it. I mean, all sorts of things. And, And people are always talking about there's no such thing as truth are amazingly ready to give that up when it comes to the time of flight or the amount of money in their bank account. They're usually very strict about that, right? Because, you know, it's not just, well, it's all just relative. Doesn't matter. Could be Saturday, could be Friday, anything. Pay me whatever you like because it's all relative. No, I mean, people are really kind of serious about that stuff. So truth does kind of matter, uh, and we rely on it, and that's how we get around the world seriously. But that doesn't interfere with any of the other things you were recommending, which is just... Different when you talked about integrating information there are lots of falsehoods that we believe because we're imperfect and there are lots of things we're wrong about and some of them will protect us and some of them will indeed be comforting and we need to be more sensitive hurrah to that nothing to do with truth but I'm with you let's let's be more sensitive let's try to to do that better but I think we can keep truth there and I don't think it will worry you in fact I think it will make sure you get on okay in the world and on that bombshell, unless you have another bombshell to drop.
1: I, we're running out of time. I, just, I don't want to
2: disagree with Barry because it's part of my personal philosophy never to pick a fight with a Scotsman because I'm from the south of England and I value my, my face. I would just say <laughs> something very quickly about the, the idea that you know, Facebook can't forget anything, something we have to teach our kids now, actually, that they assume that their online uh, personality will be like a regular personality and things will be forgotten and nothing is forgotten online. I wonder about the the connection with capitalism in a larger sense. There's a story that Suetonius tells about the Emperor Trajan, who was the first emperor to tax the the toilets in Rome. And his advisors said...
5: Michael O'Leary of his time. He was.
2: And (laughs) his advisors said, no, this is a very very undignified, un-Roman way of getting money for the coffers. And he held up a coin and said, and yet this coin has no smell. It doesn't smell of shit, even though that's where it comes from. And that's a really profound point. Money, money has no memory. And that's something that we, we need to be more aware of. Mm. We're living in a rich country. And a lot of those riches, if you trace back the memory trail, go to horrible places mm. to do with uh, slavery and imperialism and exploitation. And we, that's all forgotten. Because every morning the money in our bank account wakes up and it has no memory at all. That seems to me a larger worry, not that nothing is forgotten, but that too much is forgotten, and that's the, 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 the dilemma of
1: late capitalism. Do you have a, a slightly positive note to end there, to now on this? You have one. Uh, no, I just think that the future will be great, perfect, and bright. And on that and night... And we'll um, remember this night And for we'll remember time. this night with truth. The sort of truth. The sort of truth. Well, I'd like to thank all the panellists for taking part in tonight's event, for you all coming and staying. Thank you to those who ask questions. Have a very good evening and hope you do find your way home tonight <laughs> to the person you're looking for.